This morning, as we've mentioned, we'll begin a new sermon series in the book of Galatians. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the young churches in uh, Galatia was a region. It was a province of Asia Minor, and so he had planted these churches on his missionary journeys. We particularly picked this book for this series because it gets to the heart of some of the issues that are surrounding the Protestant Reformation, which we celebrate the 500th anniversary of at the end of October. As we start a new series like this, I will spend some time this morning, uh, more than usual, trying to explain some of the when and where and who kinds of details of the book. I do think it's important that we understand the background of this letter in order for us to learn from it. Part of my goal here also is to help us have confidence that the message that we've received is, is real and true and that uh, our faith is not misplaced. So we'll look at the first few verses of Galatians 1 today. It's on page 823 if you're using the Pew Bible. As well, in the bulletin, there's a sermon outline to help you follow along um, as we go. This is God's word for us this morning. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, and so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Pray with me. Father, As we come to your word, we need your strength and guidance. We need understanding and wisdom. So we pray that you would provide for it in these, uh, for us in this this morning for these moments. And we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. Today, it seems to me that the art of letter writing is almost lost. Before the advent of the telephone and email, people communicated through letters. And there are wonderful uh, scenes in movies when someone receives a letter, right? And they've received news and that they didn't know was coming and they had no way of knowing it. And it's, you know, it's been weeks since they heard anything. Letters were, you know, the way that we learned about what happened in the past. Historians use letters all the time to try to, to reconstruct the events and lives of people and important things. If I'm recalling it correctly... Many of you, of course, remember Fred Reynolds, a beloved member here who passed away a few years ago. He did an advanced degree on the study of a bunch of letters that were written by this man. I think he was from Georgia. It was around the time of the Civil War. And so it had all of this this somehow collection 
of maybe even hundreds of letters had been, had been saved. And so a historian can go through and find out all kinds of interesting information about how people lived and about the stories of their lives. That's what we're looking at today. It's an amazing letter. The book of Galatians is someone else's correspondence from 2,000 years ago or so that has been, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, sanctified from God as part of our Bibles that we can read and understand. But we need to understand the setting and we need to understand the history in order to interpret it rightly, in order to make sense of the message that Paul is trying to communicate to his audience. As we think about the book of Galatians, there's a lot of scholarly consensus about many of the facts related to this letter. For Bible scholars, this is perhaps a bit unusual because part of their job is to come up with new and radical theories as to um, explain things in different ways than people have always believed, right? For good or for bad. But in the case of Galatians, there really isn't much disagreement about some of the basic facts of the letter. The, the Apostle Paul wrote it, that it's a sort of a standard example of Paul's kind of letter writing um, in terms of its style and its format and its content. The manuscript tradition that we have of it is very stable. That means that no one is suggesting that there were, this was originally two letters or it came from two different sources and it was put together into a letter or that there were different versions that came from different places. None of those questions uh, surround the book of Galatians. So um, these, these are important things for us to know. One difficulty is how do we line up the information that Paul gives us in the book of Galatians, because he writes a lot about himself and his own story and his relationship with the church leaders in Jerusalem. How do we line those things up with the accounts that we have in the book of Acts? This is a thorny problem, because we don't have all of the information that we would like to have to have the kind of certainty that would really help us to know how everything fits together. I put a basic outline there in the sermon outline in your bulletin of one way to understand this sort of time frame between Paul's conversion and the writing of the letter to the Galatians. Like any historical reconstruction, it's not airtight, of course, but it seems to do justice, I think, of among scholarly opinion. This is one that seems very credible in terms of understanding how Paul and Acts work. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, of course, but I would encourage you to look at those references this week to get a better sense of who Paul is and where, this, where these events are happening in terms of his life. The short version of this theory is this, that the writing of Galatians fits at about Acts 14.28. It's pretty specific. Which is around 48 or 49 A.D., which, if so, would make this probably the earliest letter of the 13 letters of Paul that we have in our Bibles. In Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas go on what we call their first missionary journey. They're commissioned by the church in Antioch of Syria at the beginning of Acts 13. They travel to Cyprus, and then they go throughout the southern part of Asia Minor, preaching in synagogues and marketplaces, spreading the word of the Lord, it says, throughout the whole region. If you read these two chapters, they get run out of town, they get plotted against, they get worshipped as Zeus and Hermes, they get stoned, they get dragged out of the city and left for dead, and much more. 
It's very exciting. Uh, it's very interesting to read what happened. In the course of time of this journey, many people came to believe. And so as Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch, they go back and revisit these churches, strengthening the disciples, appointing elders in each one. It's an account of amazing fruit among both Jews and Gentiles in the midst of this intense kind of persecution. So according to this historical reconstruction, this is the background for the book of Galatians. Paul is sending a letter to these churches that he started recently on this missionary journey where he went to them, he preached the gospel. Many believed, some didn't. They, in some cases, you know, kicked him out and persecuted him. In other cases, Paul and Barnabas moved on. And then they went back through on their way home, visiting these churches, strengthening the believers. He gets back to Antioch, and then he receives word that things aren't well. And so he writes the letter of Galatians. We'll look again at our text. It gives us the information here at the beginning. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul begins by saying that he's an apostle. And perhaps we have a sense of what this means, but it's worth mentioning because it's a very important theme in the book of Galatians. An apostle is one who is sent like an emissary, a representative, a delegate, someone who is given the authority of the person who sends them in order to represent them. And so Paul is saying, I've been given the authority, in a way, of Jesus. I'm his emissary. I'm his representative. I'm his delegate who is writing this letter to you. Of course, we know that the word apostle had a specific meaning as Jesus called many to be his disciples, but he called 12 to be his apostles during his earthly ministry, calling those out from among the crowds for more specific uh, instruction and, and following. So it seems like Paul is claiming for himself the kind of status of the 12, of those who follow Jesus. And it's interesting if you think about it. Who did Jesus leave to be his witnesses? The message about Jesus comes into the world Basically, with this witness pattern of 12 and 1. They're the 12, of course, minus Judas Iscariot, who spent three years with Jesus. They watched him do miracles. They listened to his teaching. They saw him after the resurrection. And they have one kind of eyewitness testimony to bring. And then we have Paul, who wasn't in that group. And he says he's the most unlikely convert because he persecuted the believers in the church, as he says in Galatians 1, 13. The nature of his witness is different from the 12. His perspective is complementary. It's not against theirs, and it's just as valid, because, but it comes from a different trajectory, not from knowing Jesus and seeing him and being with him for three years, but from a direct, dramatic encounter and from direct revelation, not from the testimony of any other person. We read about this, of course, in Acts chapter 9. And he mentions this fact multiple times in Galatians 1. 
that he gained his information about Jesus, not from the disciples, but from Jesus himself. And we'll see during this series that this issue of Paul's authority and Paul's integrity and Paul's status as an apostle will come up again and again in this dispute with those in the church who have turned against his message. And we see that in our text again in verse 10 where he begins to defend himself. After this initial opening, Paul gets down to the business of the letter. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. If you look at most of Paul's other letters, after the opening greeting, he writes some words of encouragement. He uh, says something about his fondness of his experience with the believers there. He talks about, uh, or he offers a prayer for them. So it's really striking that Galatians begins so differently. It begins with this sharp kind of accusation. Paul is astonished that the Galatians are deserting Jesus. They're turning away from him. They're switching their loyalty from him to some other kind of gospel. It's astonishing to him. It's shocking. It's scandalous. Most of Paul's letters are what we would call occasional letters. They arise from a particular situation within the church that needs to be addressed. So what's the problem? here. These young believers are deserting Jesus. They just accepted this message. He just went through and strengthened the churches and appointed elders, and they're deserting the message? Why? Verse 7 tells us that some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. They're disturbing. They're unsettling these believers by changing or distorting the gospel message. What's the nature of this distortion? We'll learn a lot more as we go through the book. I can't talk about it all on the first Sunday, of course. And the issues will unfold as we go, but we can summarize these kinds of facts. These agitators probably are, are from a Jewish background, and they probably think of themselves as followers of Jesus. They would probably assert that faith in Jesus is important, But they seem to think that faith is not enough. We get the sense that they think that they need to to improve. They need to correct Paul's gospel message by something like completing these Gentile converts by making them like converts to Judaism and thus bringing them under the law of Moses in order for them to be fully and truly saved. They think the Gentiles must follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, including things like circumcision and other identity markers that were part of God's old covenant with Israel. It seems like they think that getting in to this Jesus movement begins by faith, but staying in comes from obeying the laws of the Old Testament. This we'll see, of course, over the weeks that we do the series. But we should understand these aren't non-Christians that are trying to win Gentile, the Galatians to paganism. They're not those who would deny that Jesus came as the Messiah for the Jewish people according to the Old Testament 
prophets. The issue that will come up again and again in this book is how does following Jesus relate to following the law of Moses? What does a New Testament believer have to do with the Old Testament and particularly the laws of Moses? So to answer these kinds of questions, we have to take, again, one step back and consider what the Christian church was like at this point in history. There wasn't a written New Testament for the churches. This might, Galatians might be the first letter, actually, that, has, that eventually becomes part of our Bible. We shouldn't think in terms of separate religions of Christians and Christianity and Judaism. We shouldn't think in those categories at this point in history. So f- kind of forget most of what you know about modern Judaism <laughs> when, we think, when we talk about Jews of this day. Because Judaism itself dramatically changes based on two events. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD and then the failure of the Bar Kokhba revol- revolt in, three, uh, in, I'm sorry, in 136 AD. And those two events really change the course of Judaism and make it much more like we understand Judaism as a religion today. But that wasn't the situation back then. Paul, of course, and the disciples were Jewish people. They believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And Paul had a pattern in his missionary journeys of going to the synagogues first to talk to the Jewish people who had the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and could understand these things about the Messiah. We see that in his first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14. He's appealing in those speeches to people who love the Hebrew Bible. And he's trying to to show from the Hebrew Bible, from what we call the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah. So historically speaking, this line between Christianity and Judaism will continue to be fluid for probably a couple more centuries In some places, maybe more, maybe less. Jewish practices and rituals will continue to be a part of worship for Christians. Groups of Christians all over the Mediterranean world will look more or less Jewish based on their practices. I can give you an example. If you go to the oldest churches that are in Ethiopia today, many of them are still functioning Because what they did, apparently this was unique to the geography of of Ethiopia, was that there were caves, and they they would put the church, they would build the church in a cave. And they would build these nice... Uh, facades, you know, kind of, um, you know, entrances in the front, and then within, so most of what you would go into for the church would be in a cave. So these have been very well preserved, so we can see what they were like from the early years of the church. And what they, what they show us is a very Jewish pattern of architecture, of where, where the book was kept. They look like synagogues from the Roman world. And so, so there were, I mean, this isn't suggesting that these people weren't Christians, of course. It's just suggesting that there, there was a, a more, what we would call Jewish, look or feel to the architecture of their churches. So scholars talk about this idea of the parting of the ways between Christianity and Judaism as an uneven process that, that took a long time. And of course, there are ways that the two never parted. You know, we still use their Bible, don't we? 
So it seems certain in this period of history that the Romans and other outsiders would see this controversy about Jesus as a dispute within Judaism, not the, the dividing of two different religions. And Paul begins to get in trouble, as we see on the missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, because he believed the radical idea that this message was not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And we see clear evidence of this as we would look at those two chapters in Acts. For Paul, the arrival of the Messiah means a dramatic change in terms of the function of the law of Moses. This is what he says in his, one of his speeches in Acts 13. It's Acts 13, 38 and 39. Sort of in the climax of the speech, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, and this is a speech within a synagogue, that through this man... That's Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed under the law of Moses. We've seen in our study of the Ten Commandments over the summer that the law of God is beautiful. That it's God's grace to tell us how to flourish in his world and to know right from wrong and to seek what is good and avoid what is evil. We need to know that sin harms us and there's no substitute for God. But the same law, the law of the Ten Commandments, doesn't set you free exactly, does it? It sets a standard that you can't meet. Once you have grace and forgiveness in Christ, then you find freedom because the law is your teacher, it's your guide, it's your encouragement. But it's not your taskmaster. It's not the standard that is still applied to you because the standard was put on Jesus and he fulfilled it perfectly and he gave his righteousness to you. Right? So without a Savior, the law doesn't lead to freedom. But with a Savior, the law shows us the way to freedom and how to please God. You see that there's a key difference there. And that's what Paul is saying here in Acts 13. Everything that you couldn't be freed of under the law of Moses, you are freed of from in Christ. And we understand, of course, that there are different parts of the law of the Old Testament of Moses... There's the moral law that, like the Ten Commandments, that applies to everyone everywhere. There are other kinds of laws, like the civil law, which was applied to the society of ancient Israel. There were the ceremonial laws, the laws for worship and sacrifice, which were pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in him. And so in this speech in Acts 13, Paul is telling the audience of, in this synagogue that the coming of Jesus changes their relationship with the law of Moses. There's freedom in Christ because he fulfilled all of the laws. He fulfilled the moral law so that code isn't hanging over you. He fulfilled the ceremonial law, which was pointing to him. So those things aren't required anymore. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God means that you don't have to sacrifice lambs anymore. And you shouldn't because he paid that price once for all. And so this is the witness of Paul and the message of the whole New Testament. And this change in trying, Paul trying to convince these people of this change is what gets him into so much trouble on this missionary journey. Many of the Jewish religious leaders 
reacted very negatively to his message. Some of the opposition, of course, was coming from pagans who couldn't understand, as we read about it in Acts 13 and 14, but much of it is coming from the Jewish people who didn't agree with Paul and his uh, understanding of how Jesus changes the way that they relate to uh, the law and how Jesus, the coming of Jesus opens the door for all of the Gentiles to come in. So I think this helps us understand the urgency and the uncompromising nature of Paul's letters to the Galatians, doesn't it? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so I'll say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. The word gospel means good news, and Paul is holding out the fact that freedom in Christ is only good news if you don't have to keep a bunch of laws in order to stay in, or if it takes faith plus deeds and Jewish rituals and identity markers to get in. And this will be what we unpack over the next few weeks in the book of Galatians. The gospel has arrived in Christ, and Paul is saying it must not be distorted, it must not be confused, it must not be lost, because there isn't another one. And to preach another one, Paul says, is the way to curse and condemnation. What about this for us today? How does this letter to the church in Galatians uh, in Galatia, an encouragement to our faith. If this, you know, re- historical reconstruction is close to accurate, if it, y- it yields something of a situation in which less than 20 years after the earthly ministry of Jesus, there is another apostolic witness besides the 12, and he's traveling with this message. And Paul begins his letter with the assurance that this man, Jesus, is the Lord and Messiah, that he's the Christ. He died to deliver people from sin, and he was raised from the dead. So that close to the earthly ministry of Jesus, the whole of the gospel story is there, that Jesus came, that he was the Messiah, that he died, and that he rose again, and that he did this to deliver people from sin sin. That's just in the opening greeting of Paul's letter. For a skeptic in any age, you have to, if you want to investigate this story about Jesus, you have to account for these facts. Besides this, of course, Paul is writing to a group of people, you know, these sort of baby churches, who have already believed this message all over Asia Minor. And according to Acts, the message was spreading throughout the whole region everywhere. And of course, many people weren't convinced and there was opposition. But the fact that anyone was converted is amazing, isn't it? Given the situation. What's the motivation to join this community of people who get scorned and persecuted? Right? It's not like the state supported the Christians. That doesn't happen for 250 or 300 years. Even more, what is it, if you're a Gentile, what does the coming of the Jewish prophet to the Jewish people have to do with me? Right? It's like, 
the news that a small island in the Pacific Ocean just elected a new president. Who cares? I mean, I don't know. That has nothing to do with me. My life won't be affected. And the divide between Jews and Gentiles in that day was massive. It was huge. Gentiles didn't care about Jewish religion at all. It was probably super weird to them. So there were these huge barriers culturally and sociologically to Gentiles even listening to the words of this Jewish teacher named Paul, much less jumping onto the bandwagon of his faith that gets you ostracized and mistreated. Except if the message is true. Except if something supernatural happens in your heart when you hear this news, when you understand it, when you believe it, and when you're so profoundly changed by it that you can rejoice in the face of persecution. When you found the pearl of great price, then you sell all of your possessions to get it, Jesus says. If you found a treasure hidden in a field, then you do whatever it takes to buy that field, and you're happy about it. You're not crying about how much it cost you. You're happy that you found the treasure in that field. So it's really difficult to explain the Apostle Paul and the existence of this letter and the growth of the church in this environment unless the story about Jesus is really true. That something world-changing really happened and this news about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection and the forgiveness of sins could not be stopped or contained. Even until today, our faith rises and falls, doesn't it? On the historic nature of this account. And this book gives us places to stand, doesn't it? It gives us security. For us who believe, I hope the letter will strengthen your faith and confidence that God's word is true and that it's reliable. Lots of people from lots of different places who are very different from you and lived a long time ago were convinced by this message and they followed Jesus. We have good reasons to believe. For some of us who might be on the fence, might be unconvinced, consider this evidence. And if you aren't too afraid, ask God to show you that he's real and that the story about Jesus is true. As we begin this series in Galatians, I'm excited about it. May we see more clearly the whole of the gospel message. May we cling to it that much tighter and may it change us that much more. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that a letter written by a man in a very different place uh, to a group of people very different from us is profound and full of insight that changes our lives. And we thank you for the way that you preserved that and the way that you have worked such that this message is good news to us too. We thank you for the news of the of the resurrection of Jesus and the freedom that we find in the gospel that we don't have to uh, keep a law anymore but that you kept it for us Jesus we praise you for that continue to encourage us through these words this week we pray it in Jesus name amen